You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Robinhood is facing a barrage of lawsuits by customers over claims it unfairly blocked trading in shares of high-flying stocks like GameStop, whose share price surged after being touted on social media forums. Joining me is commercial trial lawyer David Bissinger, a partner at Bissinger, Oshman & Williams. Are these day traders on forums like the Reddit-based Wall Street Bets changing the way the market works? I don't know if it's changing the way markets work, but it's certainly opening up trading at a level that we've never seen before because Robinhood is a you know commission-free uh, platform in which Robinhood makes its money in what they call payment for order flow. Uh, in, in other words, the, the product is really the traders, and Robinhood makes money off of the uh, spread between what the say a buyer of the stock pays versus what Robinhood has to pay to fill the order, uh, and so it's just part of a, an evolution that began, you know, really in the 60s and 70s with Charles Schwab, and then the elimination of fixed commissions, and then just the continued reduction in trading costs, which uh, has characterized Wall Street really for the past 50 years. So is the story all about these day traders banding together over social media platforms like Reddit's Wall Street Bets? Investors following Reddit, uh, I think, are just part of the story. For example, according to Matt Levine on uh, Bloomberg's Money Stuff column, really only a minority of the purchases last week of GameStop stock uh, were by retail investors. Uh, Certainly, there's going to be other hedge funds, uh, and I think it's not well indicated or mentioned by the press that it's very likely that other institutional traders are on the buy side, uh, whereas the current media frenzy really focuses on the short-selling hedge fund, especially Melvin Capital, uh, which short-sold the stock, uh, you know, however many months ago. So why are the hedge funds in it? I think it's probably a mixed bag. I mean, for example, the most famous uh, hedge fund that is long GameStop stock is Michael Burry, uh, ironically famous for shorting the housing market, you know, more than a decade ago, as documented by the Christian Bale character in the movie The Big Short. Uh, in this situation, Michael Burry uh, started buying GameStop stock, I think, in uh, the third quarter of 2019. But what I uh, suspect that once the dust settles and investigation is conducted, you'll see plenty of other hedge funds uh, from you know 2018, 2019 to the present. Uh, buying the stock as opposed to shorting the stock. Robinhood has been criticized from all sides for restricting trading. So do you buy their reason for restricting trading? You You know, I think there's a good case for it. You know, we don't know all of the details. It's really a question of whether their rationale that they stated is truthful, but there's a good case for it. And the rationale that Robinhood gave for stopping trading was they needed to ensure that they had adequate net capital. This gets into a somewhat esoteric but extremely important question for investors, because if Robinhood kept allowing people to drive the stock up, the GameStop stock, to say a 1000 or more, uh, what you would see is that the net capital of Robinhood itself would likely be uh, so illiquid that it would put 
Robin Hood in jeopardy of collapse, much as happened with like Lehman Brothers and other actors in the financial crisis, you know, 12 years ago. And so what I think would be ironic would be if Robin Hood had allowed people to keep trading, and then when the bubble inevitably burst, the traders in Robin Hood buying GameStop stocks suddenly would suffer these huge losses, and by the way, massive margin calls, ruining their lives. And then we would see a populist outcry, much like the home buyers in the real estate bubble that led to the financial crisis of 2008, accusing uh, banks and so forth of predatory lending. Don't forget that Robin Hood was extending margin to the Redditors, the supposed Redditors trading and buying uh, GameStop stock. So these guys buying GameStop stock are not just buying it with their own money. They're buying it you know, on margin with extensions of credit from Robinhood. And the problem is once the traders start accumulating a massive position in house money, the margin needs to be ratcheted way, way down. And so Robinhood certainly had a contractual right. Paragraph 16 of its customer agreement says it can stop trading in the stock at any time. And that contractual provision is absolutely necessary for any brokerage firm to operate because of extreme market volatility events just like this. And Robinhood, at a certain level, whether that's truthful or not here, we don't know. There'll be an investigation and we'll find out, did have to comply with the net capital requirements of the Securities and Exchange Commission and the clearinghouses through which Robinhood trades. Remember that the buyers of GameStop stock at Robinhood aren't just buying the stock immediately from some other counterparty at Robinhood. They're buying it through an intermediary called the Depository Trust Corporation, DTCC. It's a clearing entity, a clearinghouse. And DTCC requires Robinhood to maintain adequate net capital, as does the Securities and Exchange Commission. So maybe Robinhood's reason for stopping was not truthful or accurate, but there's a plausible explanation as to why they did it. We'll find out. The SEC has said it's closely monitoring the situation. What kind of regulatory problem would this be? What's the SEC looking for? Well, I think the first thing uh, that comes to mind is whether or not Robinhood was, in fact, truthful in saying that its net capital was in jeopardy. But when you look at the massive increase in the stock price of GameStop and other of the similar shares the Redditors were trading in and the relative newness of the platform of Robinhood and the fact that Robinhood did, in fact, have to you know, draw down from its lines of credit, which it wouldn't have wanted to do. I think that the SEC will investigate and, and probably with uh, congressional investigations as well to prepare a detailed report as to as whether or not that actually happened. Again, I tend to think it did, uh, at least at a certain uh, level. Then there's discussion of, you know, how do you regulate these uh, new online trading platforms like Robinhood that, you know, allow a lot more flexible trading than the, you know, old conventional commission-based model, you know, I don't know exactly what those regulations would be, but from what I see as a securities litigator, I don't see anything here that cries out for a radical change in the securities regulations. We have, and have had for you know nearly a hundred years, comparable securities regulations. I mean, even before the 1929 stock market crash, the New York Stock Exchange imposed various net capital requirements. They weren't as rigidly enforced as after the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934. But, you know, the, the Wild West of stock trading really was in the late 19th century and, you know, really came to an end well before any of us were born. 
Senator Elizabeth Warren called for a broader review by the SEC and said broker-dealers that invite individual investors need to operate based on basic rules and to keep the playing field level. Do you think that's the problem here? You know, I'm not even sure what that means because <laughs> if you're a trader, well, just quite literally, if you start out, say, with you know a $10,000 trading account, you're a small retail investor, and you start buying GameStop stock, you know, if you started buying it, you know, say three or four months ago, you know, when it was whatever, the 20s, uh, and all of a sudden that converts into hundreds of thousands of dollars because you've ridden this huge wave, and you've been doing that in part on margin. Um, I don't know that there's any fundamental right. In fact, I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, once I think Elizabeth Warren and, and the others, and I would say this applies equally to some of the right-wing uh, uh, populism uh, on the issue, uh, that once people really sit down and realize trading in a stock exchange is an incredible privilege, and it is not something that just is – it just doesn't happen. It, in other words, you need market infrastructure to allow for the safe trading. And again, just look back to the credit crisis when the, the regulations were dropped and all of a sudden you had the democratization supposedly of real estate finance that led to horrible outcomes for you know small, you know, low-income and middle-income uh, families. And so you know, I think it was a very you – know, it's a provocative issue, and it is so much fun to see the big shots you know, get their noses bloodied and uh, see the little guys purportedly winning. I get that. It's great fun. You read the – I would invite all of the listeners to subscribe to the Reddit sub-account called r slash Wall Street Bets because it's just funny. I mean, it's just silly and goofy. But to say that these traders, these retail traders, have a fundamental right to drive up the stock way beyond any rational, you know, corporate valuation of that stock – you know, really, I think, mistakes the purpose of the stock market. As Warren Buffett says, the stock market in the short run is a voting machine. You can drive the price way up. But in the long run, it's a weighing machine. It weighs the long-term earnings, the long-term cash flows of the companies in which the stocks are issued. And I don't think anyone seriously believes that GameStop stock is going to sit at you know, $400 for a long time. I mean, this morning, at least, last I checked, it was down 25%, down, I think, in the 200 range. And when you look at the company's cash flows and fundamentals, it's just hard to believe that it's going to stay there. Maybe this uh, short-selling hedge fund, Melvin Capital, gets wiped out. Uh, maybe there's some, you know, come up and for a certain small group of hedge fund uh, traders in New York or whatever. But, I mean, I think it would be a mistake to assume that the you know, alongside the purchasers of GameStop are entirely these small investors. I think it's very much more likely that there's other hedge funds quietly behind the scenes, letting the Reddit guys take all the publicity while the hedge funds, uh, you know, profit from Melvin's uh, misery because hedge funds love beating each other up. They tear their faces off every day. This is just a public example of something that has been going on since trading began. There are close to 20 lawsuits by investors against Robinhood. What are the suits based on? What do they have to prove? Well, the, the lawsuit I have in front of me, it makes the mistake of alleging breach of contract. In other words, that the investors supposedly had this contractual right to keep trading. The lawsuit itself attaches the customer agreement I quoted earlier with paragraph 16 that says that Robinhood can put a trading halt on customer trading, basically at its discretion. 
And so it's hard for me to see as a commercial litigator and especially someone that does a lot of securities litigation, how that constitutes a breach of contract when Robinhood had the right to stop the trading, especially given the market fundamentals. Now, if it turns out that Robinhood was engaged in some chicanery, okay, maybe. But I mean, Robinhood, I'm sure, did not want to stop trading. I mean, they do better by letting their customers actually trade. Maybe it's a cabal. Maybe there's a secret pact with Robinhood and Citadel and these other people to shut down the small investors. But I think that that's you know, going to be viewed as implausible once people step back and realize how the market system actually works. So, Again, it's great fun. It's great, great fun to see these guys get beat up, but you got to really step back and look at the market infrastructure. So do you think that these lawsuits then won't survive motions to dismiss? Well, maybe we find out something provocative in that Robin Hood did something nefarious and underhanded. But if it's just simply the allegation that Robin Hood breached this contract by, you know, not allowing people to continue to buy GameStop, I mean, the Tampa lawsuit, for example, says that deprived the customers of profitable trading opportunities. That, to me, seems like a real stretch. It's going to be very difficult for an investor to claim, I had the right to make another, say, $100,000 and drive GameStop stock all the way to 500 when GameStop can come in and say, no, we had the right to stop this, and by the way, we had a good reason uh, for it. Again, maybe there's something out there we haven't seen. Much of the facts, you know, by necessity, haven't been fully uh, ventilated, but I would I would find that uh, implausible, again, barring some incredible revelations. Also, do the Robin Hood investors have to submit to arbitration according to the contract? Yeah, the, the contract does include mandatory arbitration. Whether or not that actually occurs is going to be interesting because it may well be Robin Hood decides to take the investors who filed lawsuits up on their desire to be in court, which Robin Hood would be allowed to do. In other words, Robin Hood would be able to waive the arbitration requirement, get all these cases consolidated in front of a judicial panel on multi-district litigation, and maybe get rid of the cases that way because individual arbitrations in such a massive context as this might be difficult. You know, I, I think the, the the Bloomberg piece Chris uh, Dolmich uh, wrote that uh, we you and I discussed uh, indicates that these, these lawsuits are probably going to be around for a while. Uh, my sense of it is that they'll die a slow and painful death. Why do you think it'll be slow? Because of the massive number of lawsuits that investors have filed all over the country, which will trigger this multi-district litigation process. Uh, at least that's, I think, you know, a, a one view of it. It, it it's conceivable Robinhood decides to challenge each of these lawsuits individually uh, in in court after court after court. But given the number of the lawsuits, it, it kind of makes sense that uh, they would be consolidated for uh, you know pretrial treatment before a multi-district litigation panel. But that's going to be again something we just have to see in uh, how it plays out. Uh, Robinhood could also compel these uh, arbitrations uh, or compel these lawsuits to arbitration. That's another way to handle it. Um, but, um, you know, I think that the conventional wisdom and a lot of the like law professors and so forth and other experts are, are, are probably right that it'll, it will be consolidated before the ju- judicial panel on multi-district litigation. And that just takes additional time. Just explain briefly why companies usually prefer arbitration to trial. Well, the conventional wisdom is that it, it avoids runaway juries uh, and, and, you know, that's definitely true in many instances. I will say that I'm a, a little bit more of an agnostic because a lot of plaintiff's cases 
do better in arbitration uh, if, if, for example, there's no depositions and no motion practice, or at least not much motion practice, and the cases get decided, and then once they're decided, there's no appeal. Uh, so I think there's uh, really kind of a uh, you know pros and cons to arbitration versus court, but there's no question that in most consumer contracts like this, they do contain arbitration. That's very common in the brokerage industry. The cases are typically heard by the uh, financial industry regulatory authorities arbitration uh, subsidiary, and that uh, uh, that is viewed as generally being favorable to defendants. But, you know, there are cases, and I've seen them one, I've won them myself in front of FINRA arbitrators. So it isn't just a guaranteed victory for the defendants. Uh, and in some cases, there's advantages to the uh, plaintiff investors. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Dave. That's David Bissinger of Bissinger, Oshman & Williams. The number of Americans getting divorced plummeted last year, and the marriage rate also dropped as thousands of weddings were postponed or canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This early look at COVID-19's effect on divorce and marriage statistics comes from Bowling Green State University's Center for Family and Demographic Research. The data contradicts earlier predictions that COVID-19 and the stresses of the quarantine would cause divorce rates to surge. Joining me is family law attorney Dan Lipschultz of Aronson, Mayevsky, and Sloan. Tell me how COVID affected your divorce practice. Well, uh, I thought there would be, you know, there was a lot of news around the country, around the world, that COVID would cause a significant increase in divorces. Um, I have not now, a year into the pandemic, seen that. Uh, obviously, when the pandemic first hit and being a practitioner out of New York City, you know, we went down in mid-March ahead of other parts of the country and courts were closed. And with courts being closed and not having the ability to operate virtually at that time, things certainly came to a relatively grinding halt. But, you know, there was talk, as they said, at that time and over the course of the summer that when things opened back up, there would be a, a major, major uptick in divorce rates. And I, I can't say that, that that's happened. I think that as things have opened back up, yes, we've seen an inflow of new matters, but certainly nothing that is significantly greater than prior to the pandemic. And to some extent, I think there's a certain type of matter that, that we've seen, and, and there are other types of matters that we have not seen, and that deals with, I think, people in certain economic situations and socioeconomic stature of families. I think that, you know, a lower socioeconomic stature family or a family where one or both spouses have lost jobs. I think the decision to move forward with a divorce has become certainly a harder one, given that divorces can involve complicated issues and can be expensive. And the, you know, there is still a significant backlog of, of cases, even with courts having been opened back up and, and operating virtually. Even some wealthy couples are facing some economic uncertainty at this time and uncertainty, you know, about kids going to school, things like that. Does that affect a wealthy couple's decision to get a divorce? I don't think to the same extent that uh, it might affect uh, a less wealthy couple. Um, I think that people who have access to resources, even where there might be a slight downturn, are still going to be in a position to make that decision. I think economic considerations are always important in 
choosing whether you're going to be moving forward with this divorce or separation. But I think that the lower income households, that decision has become much, much harder than in a wealthy household. And there is also, as I said, access to court resources or the ability to perhaps engage in some type of alternative dispute resolution and, you know, hire a private judge, which is something that I have certainly seen in the more affluent families that want to move forward with um, a divorce process that might otherwise be stalled or, you know, significantly delayed because of the pandemic. As far as getting a divorce case through the courts during COVID, were you able to do that or were divorces basically stopped for a while? In New York State um, and specifically New York City, uh, they were they were stopped. Um, you weren't even able to commence an action for divorce for a number of months. I think uh, given that the city or Manhattan was um, more of an epicenter than other parts of the state and certainly other parts of the country, um, other parts of the state began to open up sooner than New York City. And then again, once things opened back up, um, it didn't necessarily mean that there were in-person, in-person court appearances. In my field in matrimonial law in, in uh, New York County, which is Manhattan, there are still no uh, in-person proceedings. It, it's all virtual. And that has changed the manner in which uh, we've been practicing law. You're not appearing in court. You're appearing virtually. Um, the filing has gone predominantly to electronic filing. And I think that has changed the pace in which uh, you have access to the courthouse, um, the pace in which cases move forward. Uh, I, you know, they, there are far less trials than there were uh, pre-pandemic. I think we're still adjusting to it. Um, in, in Manhattan, there are, you, you appear before a judge, but economic issues in a case can be referred out to a special referee, which is sort of an underjudge, and those trials have not begun yet. Um, so you, where there was a huge amount of economic cases being tried by uh, a number of different referees, um, those have not uh, really restarted yet. Um, and, and in addition, if you don't consent for there to be a trial electronically, then you don't have to participate in one. And it can certainly, so if there's not consent on both sides, it can cause further delay. Has COVID changed custody determinations in any way? It's the same process um, in terms of, you know, how you would adjudicate or you would litigate a custody case. Um, I can't say that there's been a significant change in how uh, COVID has affected that. There are certainly almost on a weekly basis, uh, new issues that arise that I think judges are consistently being confronted with. Um, you know, the same type of issue would arise and most judges would see the same one over a course of a certain period of time. For example, you know, when the pandemic uh, started, there would be a divorced family or even a family going through a divorce process and one parent wants to be in a vacation home and one parent is an essential worker living in the city and, and would like the same access to their child, but you have quarantine regulations and, and CDC guidelines. 
And so, you know, as the pandemic has evolved, there are new questions that arise, but consistent that, that you'll see judges having to tackle and having to deal with. And, and it is interesting to see which, how judges deal with those issues because on one hand, you have a court order, perhaps a court order document. And on the other, you have a, you know, CDC guideline or you have a, a, a recommendation from the governor. And certainly I've seen judges give effect to their orders unless there is some type of executive order or something that would trump that, something coming out of Albany, for example, that would say that a court should operate in this way given a certain set of circumstances. But um, there have been a lot of interesting um, custody issues because of the pandemic, because of quarantining, because of families desiring to, uh, you know, divorced families desiring to one parent live somewhere else. And, you know, the access to child and how parenting time will evolve because of that. You mentioned before private judges. Explain what that's about. So I was touching on sort of alternative dispute resolution, um, which is, you know, a different way that you can approach uh, a litigation. You can go to a mediation. You can go to an arbitration. The difference between, and, you know, I'm Sorry if I'm sort of spoon feeding it, but but the difference between a mediation and arbitration is you go to a mediator who would make a recommendation, but it wouldn't be binding. An arbitrator would be someone who would make a determination um, that would be binding. Now, how binding that is uh, depends on the type of arbitration you're in, but there has certainly been a move towards working with either retired judges, older professionals in our field that are respected to assist in the adjudication of cases. Because as I talked about before, you may not have the same access to a trial, the same access to a judge, the same ability to uh, have a trial as you could if you were coordinating with the other side, um, both both litigants, uh, both spouses wanting to move forward with the resolution of the case and agreeing to utilize uh, you know, somebody that you would pay privately to assist in the adjudication of, of your case. And that's what I was referring to, a private judge. It'd be somebody that you agree upon with the other side to basically appoint as an arbiter of the issues in your case. And there's different considerations that go into that choice as well as to that process. And uh, But I have certainly seen a move to that uh, in the litigation that I'm involved in. Um, I think that, you know, touching back to the point of the economic um, considerations, people who uh, are in a more affluent, wealthy family, I think have the ability to choose to hire somebody like that. Whereas somebody in a lower socioeconomic uh, class or a lower income family might not have that choice. Um, And so there has been uh, a move in, in some cases, to choosing to have your matter resolved by uh, somebody that both sides has confidence in and, and can act as a judge. Did they used to, before COVID, have sort of divorce clinics where people who have a low income can go and have their divorce hashed out? Yes. Uh, through the court system, they, they do that. Um, there's certainly, I think, been... Um, some delay in those um, clinics as they sort of get up to virtual speed. 
um, and you used to simply be able to go to a courthouse. Or, for example, I used to participate in something called the Monday Night Law, which was a program through the New York City Bar, where you would spend the evening, uh, whether it was judges or uh, referees or, or lawyers, and people would be able to come and meet with, you know, a professional that would help assist them or give them some advice um, for free how to approach a divorce, how to deal with certain issues that might arise. And uh, that has that, that has not been as quickly off the ground or continuing like it was pre-pandemic. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Dan Lipschultz of Aronson, Mayevsky and Sloan. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.